John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 34, Entry 423.JB3104, Certificate Number 32655, Erdos Bacon Sabbath. We got uh, a nitpicky note from Jack. Oh boy. Pointing out. A bit of game show esoteric I mentioned was wrong. Oh. And here's the thing. So I'm off the hook here. You're off the hook. But here's the thing. I knew it was wrong. I just thought no one would possibly be interested (laughs) in the nuance required to make this sentence right. Oh, hoisted by your own petard. I reckoned without the internet. So I pointed out that uh, I think we were talking about, you know, the Kevin Bacon number of being... You know, appearing in a show with somebody else makes you a certain number of degrees away from them. We d- certainly did talk uh, about it, that on the episode Erdos Bacon Sabbath. <laughs> That's That was the topic <laughs> of said episode. But I pointed out that uh, on Jeopardy, every player since night 2004 has beaten the player the previous night, which means by the transitive property, every player on Jeopardy for the last 18 years has beaten me. I was beaten uh, by somebody, sure. a better player than me, presumably. Sure. She was in turn beaten by someone else, a better sure. player than her. And so on down to the present day. But you knew that wasn't the case. I did because of a detail of Jeopardy rule minutia that hardly ever comes into play, maybe two or three times in the show's history, but which is this. If there is ever a three-way tie at zero dollars at the end of the game, Mm -hmm. first of all, you know that some or many people have wagered wrong. But secondly, none of those people come back as returning champion. You begin the next day's show with three all-new players. There's no runoff? There would be a runoff if two players finished with a positive monetary tie. Two players finish Final Jeopardy with exactly $13,000. Then there's a tiebreaker. Oh, that takes the form of... It's a single question. Whoever buzzes in first wins. Oh, I see. So you can pick a winner quickly. Used to have ties, no longer. uh, For three people to get zero... Uh, how did they end up on Jeopardy? Shouldn't they shouldn't they be back on the farm working? Well, it does mean you people probably did not wager optimally in that situation somewhere everybody should keep a few dollars back just so that, that doesn't happen. Right. Um cuz then you could win with $1. Have you ever had anybody win with $1? What a price is right thing to do. There has been a $1 champion, but there have been two or three games with with no champion due to the $0 thing. Oh. And and I don't I don't blame them. I mean, some people come into the show without a good footing in wagering strategies just because they find it 
complicated and unnerving, mathematical. Um, other people, they get in there and then it's hard to overstate just what an intense crucible it is to suddenly be on TV. And even though they thought they had a strategy going in, that all goes out the window in the, what's the Vietnam expression? The fog of war? The, I, well, the, sort of. The heat of battle? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I watched Brad Rutter choke. I, I know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, that was, I mean, that just may be buzzer timing. I mean, but it is a, I've been in that situation where I'm at the end of a big tournament and I've done this a hundred times before, but the stakes are so high now. I'm looking at my at my wager and I cannot figure out the numbers. They're just right. spinning in front of me like I'm little man Tate. And it's unnerving. Your brain just goes out the window. So so when when one of those has happened and no one moved on, that means that the that the circle has Yes. It has been broken. A single one of those, and there was one a few years ago, meant that none of those people after that point have beaten a... Have beaten you, a, a, according a, to the transitive property. The transitive property, property. I see. yes. Uh, although, uh, Jack does point out that James Holtzauer did come on after... His initial run was after that $0 game, and we know from experience that he's a person who has beaten me on Jeopardy in one of the GOAT games. Right. Game two or three or whatever it was. It was game two. Oh, well, thank you, Jeopardy yeah. historian. Well, look, I was there. And peak moment. And therefore, anybody who's beaten him by the transitive property could also beat me. Right. But what I had to point out to Jack was actually that does not continue to the uh, present day. Okay, go on. Because we had another bit of uh, another little hiccup in Jeopardy history, which is the COVID pandemic meant that the returning champion at the end of season 37 did not come back at the beginning of season 38. Because... Well, he didn't, he didn't, wasn't available to fly. Didn't feel comfortable flying. Oh, oh so um, the, I think so at, that means they're just, they're done. They're, they lose their. No, I, I think at that time it was Jeopardy policy to only have local champs. They were not going to fly anybody in. Oh, so it was Jeopardy's. Yeah, it was, I think it was problem. us saying, uh, it's only going to be California area for the moment because it's not safe to fly right now. And so this champion, I think Zach was, was his name was told, uh, you can come back at some future time. And did Jack come back in a future time? Yes, but that, of course, leads to a game with two champions, because we can't just wait for a, a triple-zero game to bring him back. Oh, right, and all the people in the middle didn't beat Zach, so by the right. transitive property, didn't beat James, so didn't beat you. Right. Zach did come back and beat, a, I think, a five-day champ, and so the that reign of people who have beaten James by the transitive property, and therefore me, has resumed. Right, but all the There's people a in the middle island between Zach leaving and Zach coming back. But they, we know they didn't beat Zach, so by the transitive property, they couldn't or didn't beat you and well, James. Well, no, we did. We don't know if they could have beat Zach. They never had to play Zach because no, he didn't but, come back. But Zach beat the guy that beat them. Uh, hmm. Right. So, hmm. so that I see what you're saying. Champion was the one that had beaten everybody, and so it's although it's a rump state. They never got a chance to see if they could beat Zach. You're just assuming they couldn't because he beat someone who beat them. That's right. Maybe, That's the, how the transitive property works. I guess. But there's also that whatever the name is for that paradox triangle where candidate A can beat candidate B, candidate B can beat candidate C, but candidate C is outpolling candidate A. So it's whether or not there's one of those circles in, in Jeopardy terms. Right. I mean, but, I, the, but I guess that's true. The thing about most Jeopardy champions is that they don't get to have multiple shots Whereas James Holtzauer only beat you once, you beat him multiple times. And on Twitter. I think, <laughs> I, think that should, I think that should still count. Anyway, so this was the game show minutia that I was hesitant 
to bring up in the original Erdish Bacon Sabbath show, and I think that has been. I've been vindicated. Yeah, by the here, fact by that, this dull <laughs> by this dull addition to <laughs> the offender. This has been hard to hard to listen to for sure. Entry nine eight seven dot ru zero three one zero. Are you zero three one zero? I am in fact zero three one zero. Certificate number five two four eight eight. The Princeton incident. This was the uh, case of the new experimental artillery blowing up that almost sank a ship that killed the president. Yes. But ended up getting him laid. I don't know if you remember the story. John, I do. John Tyler. I do. Uh, All happened on the Potomac River, the Great Potomac. It did. It was a ill-advised decision to shoot off some guns toward Mount Vernon, and the guns ended up backfiring. Now, we heard from a number of listeners, one of whom wants to defend John Erickson, who manufactured the gun. Okay. John Erickson apologist. John is an Erickson apologist. I mean, because Erickson, uh, as we mentioned on the show— is now a like a naval hero with a monument on the Washington Mall because he was the one who I think ironclad the USS Monitor. Uh, kind of the the Civil War era ironclad ships were his brainchild. Uh, Beat the CSS Merrimack. Yeah, Merrimack turned Virginian or whatever it was. Um, John writes in to say that Erickson is off the hook here. He actually was concerned about these guns because they had not been proofed. Right. When you proof a cannon, you you know preload it and fire it a bunch of times just to make sure all the manufacturing stuff held. This was a new prototype of cannon uh, that was lighter but had rings applied hot to the barrel of the cannon. Do cannons have barrels? They do. In order to, um, to reinforce the firing chamber. But uh, uh, rings on the outside of the barrel? Mm, Yikes. I don't know. Sort of holding it together with like barrel staves? Basically. And so it, it means you can, despite having, despite not bulking up the cannon more, you can fire more powerful charges without just making the thing sprung open like a, like a Looney Tunes. Yeah, banana uh, peel. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Erickson said, well, but you haven't, you haven't proofed this enough. You've got to keep firing off larger and larger charges until we you know, see if this damage is damaged. And they're like, no, 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 it's fine. And it turned out the new tech was bad. The rings failed. The third shot blew out the back of the gun. Ouch. Um, nearly killing President Tyler, which brings us to a really interesting note, which I, this did not occur to me when we were, ta- we were talking about what a, you know, what this was a time when no U.S. president had uh, yet been assassinated. The vice presidency didn't have its modern... Uh, 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 importance. Is this an alternate universe theory? It would have led to an alternate universe if President Tyler had not been, you know, if you'll recall, he stayed below decks because a favorite patriotic, the marching band had begun to play a favorite Revolutionary War era air of his. So he did not go up on deck. If he'd gone up on deck and been killed with the rest, the problem is Tyler had no vice president. Oh, he was the VP who had succeeded William Henry Harrison when President Harrison died of pneumonia and, after a month, and hadn't picked a vice president yet. At the time, I believe there was no uh, tradition or possibly even lawful way to appoint a new vice president. Oh. If you look at all the the vice presidency had actually been vacant for big for like a dozen chunks in U.S. history. Oh. Every time either a vice president died in office or a president died and the VP succeeded him, that's as recently as the Kennedy assassination. Lyndon Johnson did not have a vice president for the rest of Kennedy's first term. He You're picked kidding. he picked Humphrey at the 64 convention. I had no idea. Isn't that weird? Yeah. 
the last, so that was the last time the U.S. did not have a vice president except for, uh, oh, I guess Gerald Ford didn't pick one until he nominated Nelson Rockefeller five months after Nixon resigned. So there was a big gap in 74, the last time there was no vice president. Has well, there been a, uh, a vice president that has ascended or a vice president that has died in office since the Ford administration? Yes. In fact, I only have this, I only know this is right in front of me. Uh, it's happened a few times. Thomas Hendricks, one of Cleveland's vice presidents. No, no, no. But I'm saying oh, subsequent oh, to Ford. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, right, right. No, there are a few. The last one was James Sherman in 1913. That's the last vice president to die. Agnew's resignation would be the only similar thing following yeah. World War II. Um, but what that meant is that when John Tyler, his life was in danger, he had no vice president. And it might have led to a constitutional crisis. Was, was, was the secretary or the 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 uh, what, what am I, the president of the Senate? That's right. Well, yeah, president pro tempore of the Senate, so the longest serving senator of the majority party, who would have been at that time a little known Whig from North Carolina named Willie Person Mangum. Willie Person Magnum? And it's not even Willie short for anything. Is it Magnum or Mangum? I thought it was Magnum, but apparently it's Mangum. Magnum would have been pretty badass. So potentially the great-great-great-grandfather of the lead singer of Neutral Milk Hotel. (laughs) That's exactly. Jeff Magnum. I mean, he's from, what, Louisiana? Yeah, he's from down there. It's not that far from North Carolina. Really? Carolina? Are those guys not from, uh, aren't those guys all from Ruston, Louisiana or something? All those Elephant Six dudes? Yeah, okay, let's say they are. But I think. Until somebody writes me an angry letter. Jeff Magnum. I'm going to look it up. Me too. Where was he born, John? Jeff Magnum was born in Ruston, Louisiana. there you go. Wow. (laughs) Somebody knows more about indie rock than me, which is to say everyone knows more. (laughs) Uh, I have have pretty solid Elephant Six knowledge. Um, So Mangum would have been president for the last, let's see, what year was this? Year or so of... uh, of Tyler's term. Um, and then would have had to run against. Well, in our timeline, the Whigs nominated their big gun, Henry Clay in 1844. Uh-huh. So it's possible that, that he would have, Clay would have outmaneuvered him at the convention, Mangum at the convention and Mangum would not have run for reelection. But in either case, they both would have lost to James K. Polk. One would assume unless things are very different in this Timeline where yeah, John Tyler maybe died. Magnum was better against Polk, just as uh, maybe Bernie was better against Trump. I mean, it is interesting that it would have been he would have been replaced by a president of a different uh, a president of a different party because of the way succession was and still is set up kind of weird. You know, right. the, the the president today could still be replaced by a president pro tempore of a different party if something were to happen to the president. And well, so the maybe vice president at the same time. Maybe he he would have then run in Polk's place. Oh, no, I'm getting this wrong, because Tyler actually was a Whig. He had switched from the Democratic Party in order to run as uh, Harrison's vice president. So Tyler did run as a Whig. So it would have been a member of his own party, at least. This is top-shelf podcast. I mean, really (laughs) some of the best. In real time, you're seeing me try to remember a show we did what is this now? Three three months ago. Well, but also your somewhat extensive knowledge of presidents and vice presidents having been memorized to win on Jeopardy 
many but, years ago. But now that's all. I don't need that anymore. They yeah. give me the answers on a piece of paper now. So right, I don't need to know. Who and so you let it go. It all just ran out of you, like like paint out of the bottom of a car, like tears in rain. Uh, we could at the time, I guess we couldn't remember who the third president to marry in the White House was after Tyler and Cleveland. I think I thought it was Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Taft, right? Uh, no, Woodrow Wilson. Oh, of course. Woodrow Woody, Wilson. as we call him. And it was his younger wife who kind of became the... Right, the actual president yeah, after he The de facto president after his stroke. Uh, oh, and Zach also wants to correct us on Tyler's defection from the Democrat to the Whigs. It wasn't necessarily Bank of the United States stuff. He actually happened to agree with Andrew Jackson on that front. He just did not like the use of federal power that would be required to create such a bank because John Tyler was, as we know from his slave owning, uh, a big states' rights kind of a guy. What makes Zach such an expert here? Um, you know, he's offered an awful lot of corrections. Well, look at this. You're, you're going to enjoy this. I also finished the Hand of God episode while writing this email. Tell John I really enjoyed that one. No notes. Hey, no notes. You win. Yeah, he was mad. He was mad that there weren't notes. I could hear the grind in his voice. We mentioned the Gardner family in that episode. That was the uh, young woman that uh, that was uh, the Tyler that actually fell for the president's charms after he carried her off the damaged deck. Right, I remember. She was turned out to be a uh, she was a uh, offspring of a, the old moneyest family in the. Long Island area. I love that old moneyist and to oldest money. They're the old moneyists. And to this day, there is a private island there called Gardner's Island. I think maybe the largest privately owned island on the Eastern Seaboard. Wait, we didn't mention that on the episode because I I know about Gardner's no, Island. No, we did. Oh, okay. But here's here's what Luke mentions. This is firsthand stuff. He lived in East Hampton for five years. Oh wait, is this another Long Island person that's yelling at us about local geography? Well, that would be yelling at you. But no. <laughs> <laughs> but he did used to sail his boat in Gardner's Bay, and he has firsthand uh, testimony to the fact that if you get too close to Gardner's Island, they will send out a boat and tell you to go away. You're kidding. But he says the island's great because, you know, it's been privately owned, which means it's never been logged, which means that it's some of the oldest trees on the East Coast, and including beautiful old elm trees that never got Dutch elm, he says. Whoa. So, so they have enough people on staff that they can have somebody standing by to get on a boat and tell you to move? Should they just do what the Sentinelese do and shoot you with a blow dart when you come yeah, ashore? Maybe. Like what? Wait till what, you get out of Bible and then shoot you, kill you with a hatchet? What are the territorial waters of a <laughs> privately owned island in off of Long Island? Like, yeah, is it just like an international law? Do you get three nautical miles? I don't think so. But I mean, do you have to be within 15 feet or do they come out when you're You like, think you could be uh, just out there offshore like... Uh, you know, six inches offshore going nanny, nanny, boo, boo, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. And like actually have your thumbs in your ears, waving all your other fingers and they couldn't do Jack. Yeah. You could, it's like parking the Stugats out there and playing, uh, playing Dean Martin records really loud. See how they like it. You'd think, but, uh, Luke says they are, uh, they're pr a protective. Hmm. Unlike most rich people, apparently they're, hmm. they seem to be irrationally protective of their boundaries. They're old moneyist. Entry 1170.EZ2218. Certificate number 24789. Slag. Lots of slag notes. Well, yeah, you know, we have a lot of listeners in the uh, Rust Belt. Well, we heard from slag heap uh, neighbors all over this great country, and in fact, Canada as well. People love... Their local slag heap. Jim grew up in the South, 
And he points out, and I don't think this was mentioned in the show, that um, the concrete blocks called cinder blocks are so-called because they often have oh. slag heap cinder, like it's stuff that's already been burned once oh, sure. in there with the aggregate. And that's why they're often darker than concrete, because they're, they've got chunks of black glass cinder in them. I, I'm going to say that's a good comment. Did you ever... 10 out of 10, Jim. Nice, Jim. Did, did you ever live in like a apartment built of cinder blocks or like did you ever build a stereo shelf with cinder blocks and boards? We had a uh, we had a garage, uh, 100% cinder block garage that we converted into a band practice space that was behind the old right, the one on, Hugo um, House. Broadway. And, uh, and let me tell you, a, an unfinished cinder block building is not the most temperate environment. In winter? It, it, or summer? Uh, it's damp because cinder block like lets that moisture right on through and cold and funky. Well, Jim, uh, who does some building with cinder blocks. So Wait, did I'm, you? Did you ever live in a cinder block building? I feel like most of my student apartments seemed like they cinder were blocks. cinder block. But and, they were and we painted had, at least. And when I was a kid, we had, they were painted. But when I was a kid, we had the... Um, the stereo sitting on two boards with cinder blocks on the side. And I put my bed up on college on, uh, on cinder blocks just so I could have more storage huh. under there. It's really not that safe to turn four cinder blocks up on end and put a bed on top of it. Yeah, but you weren't doing much humping, so. <laughs> That's true. And I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a wiry guy. Yeah. Not a lot of, uh, not a lot. Of, those weren't load-bearing cinder blocks. Jim says the practice, the EPA actually stopped the practice of putting actual slag aggregate into the cinder blocks. Why? um, Because of, you know, you couldn't provide, what is this, MSDS, material safety data sheets, because... Who knows what the slag was. it could have come from 100 places. And also, there might have been radon issues. Oh, right. Because slag can still emit whatever it was emitting before you burned it. Right. So maybe maybe your band practice space gave you superpowers. Hmm, Let let me test out some superpowers. If I had a superpower, what do you think it would be? Just like you have to pick the top one. Um, you can turn any item into a Hawaiian shirt. Anything you put on turns into a Hawaiian shirt as you wear it. Hmm. I don't know if there's any way to test it because all I own is Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> yeah, well, you've never actually used the power. Speaking of slag, I guess we mentioned made the mistake of mentioning West Mifflin, Pennsylvania during that show. Oh, boy, did we? And a local boy named James wants us to know that that's where Kennywood is. Uh, an amusement park so old that it is actually a national historic landmark. In West Mifflin. In there's West a, Mifflin, a, Pennsylvania. You a, can still, one can still Kennywood. attend Kennywood. And what is Kennywood named after? Me. Oh, uh-huh. No, it's named for Kenny Loggins, of course. No, it's not. I'm sure it's somebody's last name. I'm sure it's whatever the local oh, the tycoon is, the local real estate tycoon who founded a fly-by-night amusement park. Could it be an ancestor of Doug Kenny, future editor of National Lampoon Magazine? Yeah, probably. I bet so. Uh, he sent us videos of ride-throughs of a bunch of the rides. It's the oldest, uh, oh, the first ever roller coaster attached to the, uh, where the, the train is, a, the coaster is attached to the track. Oh, yeah. Because without that, you, you fly know, off. It's like the cyclone on Coney Island. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but basically, a, a, an old roller coaster that didn't have that couldn't do anything that would actually get air because cause then the coaster would go flying have you ever ridden the cyclone on on uh coney island i have not Uh, if you sit in the back car it gets air it comes off the track it's pretty (laughs) even though it's not supposed to it's well it's whether it's supposed to or not it's very it's very wild it is filled says james with old one-of-a-kind rides that used to be everywhere like a kangaroo or a noah's ark 
Hmm. Do you have any? Have you ever been in a kangaroo or a Noah's Ark? I don't know if I have. I, I did one down a rabbit hole. The kangaroo is one of these spinning rides, but you stay on the same level except for one point in the circle where that car goes bump bump. Oh. So you go all the way around bump bump on one end, all the way around bump bump. Oh, why does that seem familiar? Am I just old enough to know all these old carny things? Probably. As a child. You're kind I'm... of a carny. And Noah's Ark is, is just a walk-through Funhouse dark ride, but I guess at the time it was edifying for children if you uh, made it look like Noah's Ark. Oh, because so it gave you some biblical stories. Yeah, there's, it's kind of pre-Jungle Cruise, you know, animal giraffe heads that lean down or elephants that make noise or whatever. Are there giraffes in the Bible? Yeah, the Bible's full of giraffes. <laughs> I mean, it? the only question is which... Which of the prophets were giraffes? Uh-huh. Obviously, some of them were. <laughs> is it Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel? Hard well, to say. West Mifflin, do they? Is that where the office was set? <laughs> do they make toilet paper there? I mean, I kind of wonder if using Mifflin as a name for a Pennsylvania paper company is a borrowing from West Mifflin, nearby West Mifflin. Let's see, let's see how close West Mifflin is to Scranton, because I don't know. Because it was not the British name. and the British show, it's like Wernham Hog or, or something like right, that. Right, and they're in Slough. Right. So they didn't borrow the same. Well, it's not that close. In fact, they're nearly opposite sides. West Mifflin's very close to the Ohio border, or, you know, West Virginia panhandle. Right. Whereas Scranton's, you know, kind of up toward upstate New York. So I wouldn't be surprised. Do you think there's a Dunder, Pennsylvania? Boy, there are so many different Pennsylvanias. I mean, Dunder sounds like such an old Dutch name, but there is not a single place called Dunder, I'm afraid. The uh, We heard from a listener in British Columbia about their local slag heap. Well, not local. Have you, do, you, do you know about the ghost town of, am I saying this right, Antioch's? No. 60 kilometers southwest of Stewart, British Columbia, as, as if I'm supposed to know that. It, it, <laughs> it was an old copper mine, and today it's just an overgrown ghost town. But, I mean, this, this listener points out that it's very cool that it's not in the desert. It's in kind of the lush forest of British Columbia because now it's kind of a, 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 a vegetated paradise. Uh, it was – the slag is still there, and it gets used uh, – it's being mined by an abrasives company. Oh. They're using the old slag from the mine to make industrial abrasives during the brief British Columbian summer. And they're not worried about uh, radon, radon, apparently. I mean, yeah, next time you use sandpaper, look out. But this is the confusing part to me of this Antioch website. The jet black silica slag pile was formerly the site of a nine-hole golf course, and evidence of the old tea boxes and ceramic tile slag gutters still exist. Huh. Now, hold on. Was the golf course there before the slag heap? That seems unlikely. Or did they turn a slag heap into a golf course and then it went got abandoned? That seems more likely. They both seem very odd. I I don't understand why it would. If, I've seen more. Well, let's see. If have you're I, abandoning your copper town, you're not going to turn the slag heap into a ghost town or into a golf course first. Have you seen more slag heaps or more <laughs> abandoned golf courses? You know, like. Certainly, you've seen more golf courses. But golf more courses, abandoned golf, golf courses, courses never get abandoned, but that's for socioeconomic reasons. You know the. Small number of people who want to use that land and that water. I saw an abandoned golf course last year on on Molokai, and it's uh, spooky. Spooky. That was a note from Timothy, uh, who actually sent us that um, Suburban Dictionary or whatever that book was called. And he uh, also points out that he had some other slag heap story. Ah, here it is. Um, the steel mills in Alabama produced massive slag piles. Right, I knew that. The state highway department during the 40s and 50s highway building boom decided they would use it to 
strengthen uh, highway pavement. Right. The problem was they just laid it down. Radon. <laughs> well, yeah. All the cars got radon and died. <laughs> That's how the cars in the Pixar movie cars got their consciousness. No, instead of like putting it into blacktop or whatever, I think they just laid it down like gravel. Oh. And it turns out that um, you can't just take steel mill slag and run rubber tires on it. People were just getting flats all the time. Oh, it was sharp. It was too sharp, yes. Oh, I thought it was going to turn into toxic dust, but it was... It probably would have, but before that could happen, it was too pointy. Wow. And it popped every tire in Alabama. That makes me laugh. That's so Alabama. At some point we were, it's, that's not okay. That's, um, that's. Oh, we can't tease Alabama? No. Who can tease Alabama if not us? I guess Mississippians. Mississippians yeah. Yeah. Uh, Andrew answered the question we had about what's, we were talking about um, the sand shortage and sand as a commodity. You mentioned that it was used in fracking. I think I asked why, and maybe neither of us were sure. But Andrew apparently is a bit of a fracking expert and says that the sand, hold, once you frack the rocks, the sand is, you know, uh, poured in and it holds the cracks open. Oh. And so oil and gas can flow through and upward through those cracks. They can flow through the sand. Yeah, without um, the cracks reclosing. But the sand has to be special. It has to have a really high silica content because that would be the strongest sand and the grains need to be round so it doesn't clog the cracks. Right. Um, and so you need to get uh, the sturdiest, roundest sand. Lake Michigan apparently has a ton and Wisconsin and Michigan are constantly shipping their their round sand to, you know, fracking dystopias like North Dakota and Alberta. Yeah, I got to get that round sand. Uh, it's unpopular in Michigan because, you know, they... They're scooping up some beach or whatever. Um, however, Andrew also points out that you will probably know if you ever encounter sand round enough for, for fracking purposes. Do you know how you will know? Um, 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 no. Have you ever walked on squeaky sand? Um, um, you know, you step in the sand and you can hear it go under your feet. I, I I've don't been think on so. I've been on beaches where you can hear the sand squeak. Really? And apparently that's because it does not have jagged edges. Oh, like so it doesn't grab. It's rounded sand. Yeah, it doesn't grab. You're just it's just you're hearing it rub against its fellow grains as they roll away. Squeaky sand. You've I, never listen. Maybe next, I guess next time you're in Hawaii, you need to just be so aloha that you're listening to the sand speak. To I you. guess I wasn't trying to evaluate the sand in that way, but yeah, I will listen. Here's another compliment from Andrew. Despite your latent concern that the Slag episode might be less than interesting, I found it quite informative and entertaining. Oh, and he already knew about it. There you go. Think about somebody that didn't know about think it, about how informative they must have found it. Think about it. somebody who doesn't work in fracking. <laughs> Entry 447.mk0737. Certificate number 25222. Facilitated communication. This was the episode about the discredited um, therapeutic technique for nonverbal patients to communicate by kind of using a Ouija board-like tool. And then it turned out it wasn't them. It was their caretakers that were revealing the messages through, again, Ouija board-like properties. Right. Assuming that the dead are not making Ouija boards work. Don't know if we can assume that, but yes. Let's assume for the point, uh, for just this simile alone. Yes. All right. Um, we, I got an interesting series of notes. For I, I tried to take a light touch here because I know this is a, a sensitive issue for many, yeah. especially parents of nonverbal kids who want to believe that uh, FC-adjacent technologies still work, 
even though you would have thought they'd been discredited 25 or 30 years ago. But I heard from a woman named Janice who, uh, you know, runs an advocacy site about the abuses of the facilitated communication movement. Interestingly, she's a former facilitator. Oh, um, that's kind of the best debunker there is. Right. Someone uh, who used to do it. She used to do it and was double-blind tested and failed and still was like, well, something's wrong with the test because I know this is working. But to her credit, she, I guess, went through a lot of the literature and found, you know, every other test like hers was failing and then the illusion collapsed. And she said it took her a long time emotionally to actually deal with the idea that this promising medical avenue that she had devoted so many years to um, was bogus. But that, That's absolutely describing the process of figuring out that you're an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm not an alcoholic. What are you talking about? This works perfectly. Sure. Okay. Just all, Wait these, a minute. all these definitions do apply to me, but, <laughs> but hold on. Listen, this is only my fourth DWI. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so she sent me a lengthy response kind of validating because I was like, you know, Leo, well, let me know what you think. Like, are these new kind of FC adjacent technologies just as therapies, just as scammy? And she says, from her, from her organization's point of view, yes, absolutely. Hmm. Um, you know, obviously there are ways for nonverbal people to communicate, you know, the, the Stephen Hawking kind of a thing, you know, we know about these tools, but, um, because these technologies exist, uh, you know, all you have to do is twitch a muscle and blow a straw, and now you can communicate. So anytime you're use, you need to have a, a very specific caretaker move a tablet for you or similar, um, that should raise eyebrows. Yeah, you know, clearly they're they're a necessary part of the process for reasons you don't want to acknowledge. And I asked her about some of the media coverage of these issues because after we recorded that episode, there was a big feel good story that went around about. Some little school that was um, Mr. Rogers' alma mater, I think Rollins. Hmm. It's called Rollins. Um, they had a valedictorian who was a, a nonverbal autistic woman who gave a very stirring valedictory speech. And this went around the news media, you know, kind of uncritically as kind of a triumph of. Uh, gave the speech via uh, a method of. She was just giving it via a, a kind of a, a pre-recorded thing that could then recite her words. I see. And I asked Janice, "Hey, in cases in these cases of these feel-good stories, like, do you guys ever look into this? Like, is this a person who, you know?" And and she agreed, "Yeah." And and you know, I don't want to speak specifically to this one case because I don't know anything about her, but Janice does, and she's like, "Yes, the news media always covers these things wrong." As though it's um, some kind of magical breakthrough. It's a miracle. That, and really what probably happened was an adult cued their nonverbal child all the way through a degree. That can't be true. Uh, apparently it is Whoa. not uncommon. I mean, there's video in these cases of, uh, you know, th these the people who know, who recognize facility communication can watch videos of, of these communication therapies and they can see... That they're prompting. That the facilitator is prompting, yeah. So, um, and a lot of the, I, you know, I saw NPR had to, you know, NPR got enough pushback on their story that they had to say, you know, we reached out to Rollins to ask how the student communicates and so forth, you know. So there, there is enough consciousness of consciousness of this controversy that. And was that particular instance then what debunked or? I don't think anyone has written. No journalist has written some debunking because you know like what what are the percentages in that like it's totally understandable you know the the parents who really just want to believe that their child is finally talking to them and finally achieving something 
nobody really wants to write the story of we looked into it and the kid is being manipulated. Um, and it's impossible to know for sure. But, you know, Janice is an expert who can look at clips of the the short clips that are available to these people and see, yeah, I, I do see the signs. Huh. Wow. Which I thought was interesting because, again, by the time I learned about this in the early 90s, it was treated as something that we had fixed as, you know, that we had debunked as a society and moved beyond. Right. It's back. Entry 565.JB1921. Certificate number 38221. The Hand... Of God. Manos de Dios. This entry about Maradona centered on the uh, tensions between the UK and Argentina uh, uh, during and after the Falklands War. And this is very tangential, but Jonathan wrote in to ask if we had ever heard the famous ambiguous headline of the Falklands War. Uh, Do we beat Truman? Even more ambiguous. The British paper that wrote British left waffles on Falklands. British left waffles on Falklands. So that's, oh, so that's correct. Yeah. B- British left waffles on Falklands. But did they also leave waffles it on does, the Falklands? To the to the you know, the plain reading would be the British left waffles on Falklands. Because you tend to see left as a verb, I think, before you see it as a yeah. as a noun. We there. don't capitalize the left when we're talking about the left, do we? Seems well, like it ought to be. Well, it's in a headline. So yeah, oh, in, okay. in either case, it might, it might have initial caps. These are called crash blossoms uh, hmm. often. Uh, copy editors often call them that because of a, I think it's a New York Times headline, violinist linked to JAL crash blossoms. Where, oh. where the plain reading would be that somehow yeah. she's linked to a thing called crash blossoms. <laughs> When really what a we're supposed to take away is band. violinist. Yeah, that is. Oh, it, I wish I could go back and name the Long Winters the Crash Blossoms. I think the Crash Test Dummies and the Gin Blossoms should form a super group called the Crash Blossoms. But would it be super? <laughs> For Canada, maybe. <laughs> violinist linked to JL Crash Blossoms, presumably in the years following the crash. Right. Um, it's just, uh, they're kind of a kind of garden path sentences. A garden path sentence is one where... Something about an ambiguity sentence makes you start to read it the wrong way, and once you do, you you're, can't come back. You're, you're down the garden path. You're down the garden path. Uh, and many of the funny, funny, ambiguous headlines that you see are examples of crash blossoms. Um, this particular, you know— uh, How do I not name something the crash blossoms? It's got to be such a good band name. I mean, some of these are just funny double meanings. Diana was still alive hours before she died. Is this a real headline? Students cook and serve grandparents. Yeah, some of them are just kind of double double meanings. Oh, this is a famous one. Dr. Ruth to talk about sex with newspaper editors. Lung cancer. Why is that weird? Because she's not talking about sex with newspaper editors. I see, I see. Lung cancer in women mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite kind of A mushrooms. lot of them are the British left waffles type where something could be a noun or a verb. Reagan wins on budget, but more lies ahead. Some of these, they might have known what they were doing. Now, these were often circulated as fax lore or email jokes. You remember this era in the early yeah, 90s, yeah. late 90s, early 2000s. And British Left Waffles on Falklands is given in many sources as an actual headline that appeared in The Guardian on April 28, 1982. However, 
I have not been able to confirm that the Guardian ever ran such a headline. Bum, bum, bum. I looked in their index, and I looked for every occurrence of the word waffles in 1982 issues of the Guardian. There are many. That's pretty Ken. But none of them appear to be verbs. They're all they're all waffle recipes. They're all you know travel tips for the Low Countries. Uh, right, famous for their waffles, Stroop waffles. So it's po- it's possible that British left waffles on Falklands is not a historical headline. That it was um, manufactured for some of these funny uh, fake headline Jay Leno kind of lists. Hard to believe that that there was such a as I would say, Darth of actual content for that. Right. You could find such a good one. You have to make them up. And how would you even make that up? Like it's such a, it seems so hard to invent, but so easy to find in the wild. Maybe it was a different paper. It does. Uh, Maybe it's not the guardian. It feels like something that an English wit would say, like in a sort of drunken Dudley Moore voice. If any British people are listening with access to uh, one of these pay newspaper archives that I'm not going to pay. $15 $15 a month for, uh, feel free. See if you can track down the origin of British left wall. Cause it's gotten to the point where it's used as the example for this, yeah. but fact checkers can't prove it. So when it appears in the New York times, they will say a legendary headline said to have appeared in the guardian in 1982. They've n- already spent more words on it than exactly. It should, it should be, uh, but they should a lot to it, but nobody can find the urtext. British left waffles. That feels like the, that feels like a terrible album name. They must they must have left some waffles. I mean, it's probably a not uncommon Maybe not on the Falklands, but at some point a British person has left a waffle. <laughs> like just uh in the in the in the microwave at work. Yeah, I don't in mean the toaster at I don't work. mean stand up from the table leaving a waffle behind, but I mean like leaving a waffle in Portugal or leaving a waffle I see, as to, a tip. It has to be an international leaving. Yeah. Or not necessarily, but like did the British ever go ashore on the Falklands? Was there ever any kind of British yeah. land presence? Yeah. There was, right? Yeah, there so is they to- now. Well, they totally could have had a... Uh... Oh, of course. Yeah. They're the ones who would have had the presence. They're swarming all it, over. It would have been the Argentine Navy that's uh, got a beachhead. <laughs> right, which I don't... Yeah, well, that's right. Which they probably didn't have much of. So they totally... But they totally could have left waffles in, in, in some kind of mess hall. Right. But which, I mean, a waffle is a special event. I don't know how often you have waffles at your house. But, you know, when you get a waffle, like pancakes are all over the place, but waffles? Take that extra. Well, remember, we're in the age of the toaster waffle. In uh, a few Halloweens ago, there was one house in our neighborhood of single-family homes that was actually rented out to a bunch of college students. So all the neighbors, of course, are like, there goes the neighborhood. to their music too loud. My kids were trick-or-treating, and they got to the house of the college kids. And, of course, the hapless college kids were like, oh, we don't have any candy, and we probably shouldn't have put out that pumpkin. Uh, we're eating waffles for dinner. Who wants a waffle? And my kid was like, uh, pass. But my kid's friends were like, yes, please. So two or three of them sat down and had waffles for trick-or-treating. You're kidding. Waffles for dinner. What a college student thing to do. They're toaster waffles. Yeah, they're just, eating, they're just eating Eggo for dinner with fake blueberry flavoring. Mm. With a bunch of neighborhood kids. I can taste it now. Huh. Disapprove. On so at, many levels. At every level of that story. <laughs> But it also is kind of heartwarming. Entry 779.PR2513. Certificate number 42914. And what suspense there was for a second. Yeah, well, you know, I want him to want to leave him wanting. Four, but what will he say next? A message to Garcia. 
You asked during this entry, which of our listeners has to pass through the most locked security doors to get to their workplace? Do you remember this? Yes. And I, and I saw, uh, like a lot of people reply with, with their own tale of like, I have to go through seven doors on Facebook. The most, was there a seven? I think, no, I think the most might be this email from Michael who retired from federal law enforcement, but started working as a GED instructor at the County jail. Thank you, my guts. Thank you for your service, Michael. Uh, COVID shut down the program, but before, while he was still doing the GED instruction, he had to pass through six locked security doors to get to his classroom. Wow, a real Maxwell Smart. Well, that's what he says. He, he thinks that's fewer than Maxwell Smart does, and there was no phone booth. Right. Um, but I think... <laughs> such an old reference. <laughs> did you see... Did you see... What, what was it? Did I send this to you? Somebody, uh, oh no, I posted it on our Facebook page today. We, there was an article where the where the author was like, the Cold War, which for those of you that don't know, <laughs> that's omnibus. was a time uh, was a time in the in the distant past when the, that's the omnibus bit, but he's doing it straight. I was like, wow, the Cold War. For those who aren't familiar with the concept, so yeah, right, uh, Maxwell Smart. At least he and he he and we are high fiving over it. I felt like I had to explain department stores to someone the other day. Yeah. It's you could buy a lot of things. It's there. like a Target, but it's downtown and it's like six stories tall. It's like fancy clothes. Yeah. Right. You can buy a piano there. They couldn't they did not believe me. Um so Michael might be I don't think anybody beat six, six on the face, on the future links page. So I'll have to check with the with my message board and see if anybody I was assuming that it was somebody. I thought it was going to be intelligence. In tech. And it's, oh, tech. Yeah, right. because, you know, they come into one infinite loop, but they have to pass through like 11 secret doorways to get to wherever they have to go through the is. long hallways from Severance yeah. or something. Uh, I thought it was going to be, it never occurred to me that it would be a penal system. I guess that makes. It does. Welcome to America. I guess that makes sense. But if you work in the NSA in some like seventh sub basement, maybe they just have one really good door at the NSA. One good door. That's, that, that's a great. That's a great novel. Novel well, title. Whereas it's it's just going to be some crappy for for profit prison in uh, Nebraska that has six crappy levels of security. Yeah, I guess you have to get at the NSA. You have to solve a a nineteenth century French cipher or something to get to your desk. If you include the final. The final door as the door to your cell. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I imagine well, you this, get up to seven pretty fast. Just to be clear, Michael did not have a cell. Yeah. He had a classroom. Right. But yes, the the analogy I think is probably the same. Entry 1080.NA0302. Certificate number 26834. Roller Derby. Lot of listener mail. Popular, popular entry. Like many of my shows. I can I can imagine that a lot of futurelings are either roller, der, roller derbyists or roller derbyist supporters. I recently hosted a Jeopardy for a guy who had his own roller derby, or he had a roller derby pass. I think he was like a ring announcer. Uh-huh. And I was able to ask him, hey, what was your roller derby name? And it was pretty good. What was it? Uh, now I can't remember. You'll have to tune in. But he uh, he had not seen our, or had not listened to our roller derby episode? Well, you don't have to listen to this show to be on Jeopardy. What percentage of Jeopardy listeners do you think are also futurelings? Jeopardy contestants? Contestants, sorry. Uh, that's, I don't know. That's a good question. Occasionally, one will say, while we're taking our little souvenir photo or whatever, I like Omnibus. 
but often they are too cowed to yeah. uh, to try to make a personal connection with the host. I sure was. Yeah. I wasn't ever going to be like, Alex, what's up? Hey, Alex. How's it hanging? What's up? How's it going, A? Lol. <laughs> uh, Dave, it must be from Seattle, because I think you and I were speculating as to why the Rat City Roller Girls of, of Linwood were known as Rat City. Like, well, because White Center is Rat City. So that's that's what Dave points out. He knew the history of the Roller Girls. They used to play, in their very first season, they played at the Southgate Roller Rink in White Center. Right, which so, is... A really gnarly roller rink. <laughs> and you do not need to, exp- you know, if you're from here, you don't need to explain why White Center is known as Rat City. Right. We were just a little confused as to why Shoreline or Linwood would be Rat City. Yeah, no, no, right, right. Um, White Center, pretty pretty close, pretty, cl- uh, cleaves pretty closely to its name. He also uh, says that for uh, some interregnum of time, the Rat City Roller Girls actually played in Key Arena, presumably a post-Sonics time when Key Arena had more open nights. I'm trying to imagine a roller derby crowd filling up the the, I mean, the first four rows of the seats at Key Arena. I mean, it was too small for NBA before the remodel, but it was that place still had fourteen thousand seats, right? Yeah, that would be that would feel very post apocalyptic, which in in a super cool way. I'm sorry, sure. I missed it. Sure, sure. Uh, Brian, at one point we asked why roller hockey never took off. You know, if you can if you can speed skate on roller skates, why aren't, why is nobody playing hockey on roller skates? Brian says that roller hockey does exist, but it's always been knocking on the door of legitimacy for decades. It was like a, indoor soccer. Yeah. It was a demonstration sport in 1992 at the Summer Olympics at Barcelona. Never actually became a medal sport. Um, but there have been a few indoor soccer-like attempts to make a go of it. You know, promoters trying to make a little league. Brian has good memories of seeing the New Jersey Rock and Rollers yep. of Roller Hockey International play at the Meadowlands. <laughs> Um, roller hockey international went belly up in 1999. It lasted for most of the nineties. Um, there has since been a league called the national roller hockey league or NRHL, which lasted two seasons, uh, around 2014 to 2016, their 2020 return with four teams. You can't really have a league with four teams. No, that's barely a playoff bracket. Yeah. That's like a, that's a semifinal. (laughs) That's not a league, sir. (laughs) Uh, but COVID halted their comeback. So we may never see the Detroit Dragons, Grand Rapids Warthogs, Port Huron Yeti. Are there Yeti in Michigan? No. And, and the St. Louis Vipers. So wait a minute. Three of the teams are from the Great Lakes region. Yes. And then one of them is from St. Louis. And St. Louis. Downriver. That's like complaining, oh, we got to go down to, all the way down to Missouri to play the Vipers. Can you believe it? And then we got to play them six more times because there's only four teams in this damn league. <laughs> I'm hoping the NRHL comes back. I don't have know about have you ever watched an indoor soccer game? Uh, yeah, I remember it used to show up on like satellite TV sometimes during the, the what was it, the MISL or whatever yeah, that? Yeah, they were pretty exciting games. I went to a couple in person and, you know, a lot. Did lot we have a team? On. Tacoma had a team, right? I guess. The Tacoma Stars or something. I think there was a Tacoma Dome team. Hmm. You, you never saw them? No, I, this was all in Alaska. I, it, and it was always on an abandoned warehouse on the edge of town, but still pretty exciting. In that uh, entry, because we were talking about roller rinks, you talked about your childhood roller rink practice of putting all the sodas into one cup. Yeah. And calling it? A suicide. No, a graveyard. You called it a graveyard, yeah. yes. But we heard from many parts of this great land. I bet. Everybody calling it a suicide. I guess we heard from... Uh, if you look at the Facebook page, just literally 30 different states are like, suicide, checking in. 
Um, Sharif wrote to say that he called it a suicide in Phoenix, but he he thinks graveyard is an improvement because, you know, it's a little insensitive way to treat suicide. Sure. But did anyone claim graveyard? Uh, it, is it a regionalism? It appeared to be Northwest only was graveyard. Oh, okay. And except all the Canadians said they said swamp water. There are no swamps in Canada. Oh, wait, there are, but they're not swamps. No, there's uh, they're they're muskeg. Yeah, right. I should call it bog water. Swamp water is way worse than suicides or a graveyard. Yeah. I replied back that maybe there is a woke case for saying suicide. Like, let's destigmatize it. But on further review, hmm. suicide, of all the things we're trying to normalize, right? suicide's not one of them. It seems for like. For a very good reason. It, feel, it seems like the people that could lay claim to uh, taking back suicide aren't here to do that one person i think in western pennsylvania said they used zombie okay. that, that was the only other non-suicider graveyard but all the u.s ones are related to death the, oh, the canadian ones are related to swamps were there any graveyards i'm 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 wanting to know did anybody chime in and said yes we call it a graveyard the only ones i saw were washington state like i don't oh. even know if it was portland you know what i'm gonna look in real time because um, these are the only episodes that people pay for. Why not waste their time? <laughs> sure. The people are pot committed. They're called graveyards, right? Graveyards. Oh, somebody in New Zealand. Oh, in New Zealand, they do graveyards, but they don't call them graveyards. What does that mean? It just means they put it, they mix all the sodas because they're oh, ne'er-do-wells. They do them. Yes. But they don't call them that. But they deny them their essence. Uh, why can't I find this? Suicides. Yeah, here we go. So here's the list. Chicago area, Chicago land slash northern Indiana, checking in with suicide. Okay. Uh, here's southern Idaho saying suicide. Okay. Uh, southwest Idaho. Oh, wait. South Texas suicides. Um, blah, blah, blah. Frankfurt, Kentucky suicide. Philadelphia suicide. Laurel, Mar- Maryland says he's heard both. Okay. Minneapolis suicide. Here's another Canadian saying swamp water. Uh, suicide in Montana. Suicide in Northern California. Suicide in the Inland Empire. Here's a here's a Seattle graveyard checking in. Yeah, Seattle graveyard. Suicide in Louisiana. Suicide in Oklahoma. Suicide in South Bend. What a crazy regionalism. Suicide in Alabama or Tucson. Yeah, who knew this was our thing? I had never, I had no idea. Suicide in Ohio, LA. Wow, so this is for all the way to the maritime provinces saying swamp water. Here is a graveyard in Western Oregon. So it did get across the Columbia. Okay, Western Oregon, right. So uh, speaking of weird regionalisms regarding drink mixing, you know what word I heard for the first time two weeks ago? What? Spody. What, you've never heard Spody? No. Oh, Spody was big in at college, but, where you put all the fruit and all the booze into a big bucket. But did you know nobody outside of Washington State? Possibly, is this a Gonzaga or a UW thing? For Gonzaga. You? Outside of Washington State, no one uses the word Spody for this. No, um, for this mix all your mix all your booze and juice in a big. Surely not bottle. No, Spody is Seattle only. Whoa, huh? Well, what do they call it other places? Punch kegger. They probably call it a punch. Yeah, I mean, Spody here is the name both for the event and the drink. Yeah, right. And the, and in Seattle, there's a lot of Spody culture. Our, our friend's kid just got invited to his first Spody, and he was just on cloud nine. So you had never heard the term? No, my kids all knew it. Oh, because you, you My kids don't. go to high school here, but I didn't go to high school here. Right, and you don't go to Spody's. I'm 48 years old. These, and, <laughs> and this was, I think, Lakeside. So, of course, their, their Spody is at the gazebo, gazebo at the Arboretum. 
So now when I was in college, we had a, a Spody, but I don't remember whether we called the party a Spody or not. But the Spody was the bucket where where everybody went duke, 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 and threw a bunch of fruit and other garbage in there and pop and whatnot. Yeah, if you can't get uh, your hands on anything intoxicating, you just bring fruit or juice or something and dump it in. Well, the, in Spokane in 1986, there was no trouble getting something intoxicating. To have just a... A pop spody would have been... No, I'm just saying not every kid there can oh. get something from their parents' liquor cabinet. Oh, I see. So you can... Those oh. kids can contribute by bringing a non-alcoholic addition. Yeah, it's like a stone soup, right? If you if you put exactly. a, a thing of 7-Up uh, of in there, you won't be... Nobody will be mad. Do other, other cities, I assume, do have a thing where kids meet in parks and other public areas and and mix... For sure. And mix um, It's just got to be called a punch. Of, I'm sure that that's what it's called. A punch. I don't know what the origin of Spody is, and the internet was unable to help me. But somewhere, somebody's probably still living, invented the word Spody, and now knows that they did the whole thing. What's crazy is that that, I had no idea that was a regionalism. What the heck is going on up here in the North? Oh, you know what it was? It's we're, jargon. We're so far away from everywhere that all of these things, we didn't even know we were inventing a culture. It was just, somebody was like, the, old, the only nearby city is Portland, and they probably used our word. Yeah, you know? right. We never heard if if it didn't get to the Bay Area. Right. Somebody yeah, at some point in this episode, you could not remember the name of a roller derby movie, which I think was not Rollerball. Multiple people suggested the Raquel Welch vehicle, Kansas City Bomber. Can you confirm that you were thinking of the Raquel Welch roller derby movie, Kansas City Bomber? I have a vivid picture of Raquel Welch wearing a helmet and roller skates and elbow pads and knee pads. I do too, but that's just like uh, it's because I painted that on the wall of my bedroom, <laughs> right? But I. Could swear that the movie I remembered was a Paul Newman movie, but now I was told that that was a hockey movie. Yeah, that's Slapshot. And that, in fact, it was not Paul Newman, but it was uh, Sonny Corleone. Rollerball has James Caan. Right. Okay, so you're combining, are you possibly combining three movies? Now I'm, now Rollerball, Slapshot, and Kansas City Bomber. I, I had it all in, in my mind as one, uh, as one property. They should do that. They should re-edit like six kind of similar movies with a similar vibe. And you should just go see one movie that is Dr. Strangelove, Hard Day's Night, you know. Right. All six movies, Manchurian Canada, all these early 60s black and white movies kind of all in one. There's got to be a way that you could, it's somebody smart. You could probably teach an AI yeah. to turn all the President's Men, is. Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor, just turn the conversation uh, uh, into the same movie. Turn Wally loose on it. That's right. You know, Randall Monroe is our guy for that. He's the one that should, that that we should pitch this idea to. Or he would be against the machines doing that, I think. You, you remember there's all those people on the internet that have that have recut all the Star Wars movies and taken out Jar Jar Binks and made the three prequels into one good movie or all this. If they have that time, they could definitely mash up like the the uh, Manchurian Candidate and... It all originates from people taking triple albums and making one good mixtape out of them, right? Yeah. Like right. turn turn three flabby Star Wars movies into one plausible movie. But you know, you get you get uh, millennials mad at you if you say that the prequels were bad because they grew up on them and they'll be like, oh, like your Star Wars movies with the teddy bears are so good. Right. I'm sure. I didn't say that either. <laughs> <laughs> don't know, don't care. Entry 1352.1TH0207. Certificate number. Yes, yes. 
what? Zero six five. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Twee. Twee. Now, you could not remember the name of an 80s band, a kind of a, a new wave kind of band that struck you as particularly twee. Yeah, sweater pop with the oh, guitars way up under their armpits. Now, many people suggested it must be Haircut 100. And that is the correct Is that correct? Okay. Haircut 100 is what I was thinking of. Uh, it's funny because a lot of I had I could not have picked Haircut 100 out of a lineup or any of their songs, but a lot of people immediately knew who you were talking about. Yeah, they were. They Haircut 100 actually was pretty great. They had Love, Love, Love Plus One. Do you remember mm, Love Plus One? I don't. It's but the math checks out. Yeah, it's very. Um, what is that's love, right. Is love that a song about a menage a trois? No, I don't. Well, I don't know. We don't know. I mean, it's one of those songs that I knew really well, but I don't ever, I hadn't listened to the lyrics. Uh, but it's, you know, it, it's pop music. Pop, talk about. Pop, 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 pop music. Um, in the in the same sort of style of, well, I, I don't know. What is the style? It's very happy. Because I don't really think of that era of, New wave music is particularly twee, well, but I guess this need, band was. You need to watch that that music video, Love Plus One. Now we heard from. I'm glad we could settle this and the uh, the Raquel Welch thing. I, we got an uh, a note from a musician named Joe who listens to our show and used to be Regina Spector's mandolinist, if I understand his email Say sig correctly. What now? Um, I'm not sure I understand. Uh, my wife liked your episodes on Twee so much, she purchased a Peter Pan collar for our French bulldog. Okay, I'm and all there, the way in on that. And there are pictures of a, it looks it looks like it might be homemade. It's like a crocheted collar. So I have pictures of this French bulldog with its eyes focusing in two different directions wearing a, a pink and teal as was the style crocheted style. collar. She claims it's more Twee than singing sensitive love songs in a cardigan. To have a French bulldog with a Peter Pan collar, but I've seen Connor Oberst in concert, and it's a, and it's close. Need a ruling. Huh. So are we are we being asked to decide what's more twee a a French bulldog in a pink collar? And but I don't know what what it's against. Is it up against seeing Bright Eyes, or is it up against being Regina Spector's mandolinist? Because I, I assume that our, our, our listener does sing sensitive lug songs in a cardigan. Well, and I have to wonder what era of Bright Eyes because the vibe changed. Hmm. So um, we need a we need a date for his concert attendance. Yeah, but I feel like I don't know a, a French bulldog with a Peter Pan collar feels very twee. Here's the picture. Is it really possible that someone listened to us talk about twee for an hour and ten minutes and then had to rush out and buy this? Surely it must have been in them to begin with. All right. Well, now let's let, like pull up a picture of Bright Eyes, early, <laughs> early Bright Eyes. Say Bright Eyes year 2000, and we'll see. Honor Oberst. I, I misspelled his name because I always forget where the O's and where the E's are. Oberst. I mean, here's literally a picture of him against Garden State wallpaper. It's hard to get more okay. of the and, era Yeah, we're at the weird thrift, stop, thrift yeah. store shirt. That's pretty twee. It is. Maybe the Bulldog wins, though. I feel like the bulldog is, is a I mean, strong Con- contender. Connor's looking at the camera, whereas the bulldog is looking at everything. I don't. <laughs> right, it's in a the, panopticon in the, in the universe. I don't. Uh, I'm just still trying to put a a uh, mandolin anywhere near Regina Spector. Like, oh what, boy, I'd, what I'd, I'd era, like to do that. Right, what era? 
I'm not sure. I just I was just googling our uh, our correspondent. Um, Sideman in several rock, jazz, bluegrass, and folk ensembles, including oh, a jewel as well. Oh. I mean, perhaps he plays a different mandolin adjacent instrument. I mean, with Regina Spector, jazz mandolin is a, is a thing. Uh, could it be banjo? No, those are different fingerings, right? Depends on how you tune them. Mm, I don't know. But I think, um, we, we, what do we vote for here? The bulldog? He, Joe, Joe demands a ruling. Yeah, let, let's, let's go with the bulldog just because that means Joe loses and his <laughs> wife wins. And you can't go wrong if the wife wins. Also, it's possible that he is not a Patreon supporter and will never hear this. Oh, right. True. Entry 673.LK1218, certificate number 48481, Jobbers Canyon. This story of a um, ill-fated uh, urban renewal in, was it Omaha? Lincoln? Mm-hmm. Omaha. Wherever it was, um, reminded one listener of a, uh, a similar Seattle area story. And I wanted to ask if you remembered anything about Long Acres Racecourse. Of course. My dad worked at Long Acres. <sighs> he worked there. Back. Uh, As a tout? Ben, yeah. No, back before World War II. He, as a boy in uh, knicker pants. Was a jockey. Was not a jockey, but he, like, I don't know what he, he, he sold the racing form mm. uh, at Long Acres, and they tore Long Acres down, and um, and uh, then it was just this giant, and it's still there's a huge giant uh, abandoned lot aspect to Long Acres, but then they built uh, there's like a, a an an auxiliary U.S. mint there, and <laughs> there's Boeing buildings, and then also. Uh, Blue Origins rocket building. Oh, is that plant. where Blue Origin is? It's all down there. Because I knew, I knew that was in Renton. It's all down there on the old Long Acre site, and you can go there and still see, like creeping through, or you know, the grass and everything has grown up. But there's still all the parking lot and some of the. If you look at it from uh, Google Maps, you can kind of see. You can the tell oval. it used to be a track. Yeah. The uh, well, we got we heard from Cassie, who actually is a jockey. What? And has raced at Emerald Downs, but never Long Acres, I think, just because of the timeline. Yeah. I guess the story she has is that it was a beautiful track, and then Boeing bought it. Yeah. Uh, and then 20 years later, basically just abandoned it, um, leaving behind the, the warehouses you're talking about. Well, so there are, you know, as as is true everywhere in the Northwest, if you drive along long enough, you're going to find some building owned by Boeing where they're doing some weird stuff but there is actually i went back there you know obviously as i do driving around and there's a mint <laughs> and it's not a mint like the san francisco mint i don't think where they're actually coining money i think they don't coin money here but it's a thing where they what are they doing just shining the shining the quarters no they clearly drive the money up here from mm. the mint in unmarked semi trucks it's like distribution and then it's a huge it's a it's a completely like like secure environment with guard towers and electric fencing and and a 
and like a like a loading dock that's all This has turned into a podcast where you're planning a heist. It's a I've gone there specifically to look at it as though I were planning a heist. Is this going to end with you and I putting on Nixon masks? How would and, you heist uh, this place? But but there was a there was a guard kiosk by the front desk and I you know I slow rolled by it one time like you know with my nose on the windowsill of my truck like Hey, what's up? And the guards were not there, and I could see the machine guards were not there. guns. I could see machine guns in a rack inside the guard post, and I was like, "This is the greatest heist movie." And it's just back there by Blue Origins in some, you know, it's just some parking lot behind. Am I wrong Lakers. that with with all the variations on the heist movie, you know, let's rob the casino safe that has a hundred million? Has, has nobody ever done let's rob the U.S. Mint? Let's get the money straight from the horse's mouth. That seems like an omnibus topic, just dying to happen. Has anyone robbed the mint? I mean, Nicolas Cage, probably. But you'd have to, I mean, this building's pretty secure. The old San Francisco mint right there in the Castro, uh, That's. I don't think that that... I've been to Philadelphia, but I've never been to the San Francisco one. I don't think they're still making money there. It feels like it's become a, a QVC. It's San Francisco. They're they're making Bitcoin now. Yeah. Mm. Womp womp. Entry 1261.mk0118, certificate number 27789, The Swamp Dragons. This is all going to be about sports team relocation, so you're going to love this part of the agenda. (sighs) (laughs) John wrote in about the, um, I think we did not mention maybe the most traumatic sports relocation in American history. The the Mets? Uh, Yeah, well... (laughs) Basically, the Dodgers moving the Dodgers. from Brooklyn to L.A. Los Angeles, yeah. And it is kind of Mets-related. It still um, breaks my heart because I didn't care and don't care. <laughs> don't you remember going to Ebbets Field and getting an egg cream <laughs> sure when did. you were a young lad in I the, sure in the 20s? Bringing my, my homemade mitt out there. Hopping that, on the trolley and... Uh, yeah. Uh, but John is uh, old Brooklyn. His grandpa was born in Flatbush. Okay. And you know, I guess he his grandpa went to school with some of the Dodgers players because back then, like, baseball player was a job where you'd, you know, you drive a delivery van during the off season. Right. You know, he said Harry Eisenstadt, the pitcher, waxed lanes at his grandpa's bowling alley one winter. So it was very much a neighborhood team. And John says, to the day he died, Pop Pop was always angry when people would blame Walter O'Malley for moving the team. Boy. Because he's typically the villain, you yeah. know, like, uh, oh, you know, leaving Brooklyn for L.A. Walter O'Malley. And, jo- and John's grandpa always defended O'Malley, saying he had tried everything he could to keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn, but Ebbets Field was falling apart, attendance was low. You know, it was basically um, post-war, uh, I mean, white flight, basically, suburban flights, uh, city sprawl. All the all the Brooklyn families that would have gone to those games had now moved to uh, further yeah. out in Long Island or— Right up to Connecticut. Yeah, Westchester or or whatever. New Jersey. Um, And O'Malley had found a spot in Brooklyn where he could build a new stadium close to the commuter trains. And Pop-Pop always blamed Robert Moses. Ah, another thing to be mad at Robert Moses about. Isn't he the perfect villain for everything? He really is. Where's the movie about Robert Moses? Moses was dead set on putting them in, in Flushing, Queens. And... I guess O'Malley was like, if with they're not the going to, if they're not, yeah, they're going to be with the nanny. That's what he said. <laughs> Robert Moses loved the nanny, and I he was like, let's build big housing projects where people of color can watch the nanny. Yeah. That was his main thing. I'm such a fan of the nanny. <laughs> I can't believe you 
know where the nanny is set even. Um, but basically O'Malley was like, look, if they're not going to be in Brooklyn, it doesn't matter. They could, they could be in LA for all I care. I'm just, gonna, I'm just going to take the best offer. Whoa. And so when Robert Moses was like, it's this spot in Flushing or nothing, O'Malley was like, well, I got a better offer. And he moved him to the other coast. And Pop-Pop always thought like, you know, what's, you know, a, what's more, a brother, more brother power to, to him. Yeah. And I guess eventually that side in Flushing did become Shea Stadium. Right. So, so Moses did get his, did get his team in Queens. Um, and, but I guess John says Pop-Pop had died by the time that Robert Caro's book about Moses came out, which includes the story of O'Malley trying to keep the team in Brooklyn and, and Moses submarining. Oh, it. so Pop-Pop was, was vindicated. Yes, but after his, after everyone thinking he was a crank for 50 years for sticking up for Brooklyn villain Walter O'Malley. Well, that's the thing. If you live in Brooklyn and have a and have a hot take on O'Malley, of course you're going to be thought of as a crank. Um, There's nothing people in Brooklyn want more. John points out that uh, not only is the Flushing site where Shea Stadium is now, the Brooklyn site that O'Malley wanted near the rails is now... Atlantic Yards, where the Nets play. It's not Barclay Center. Whoa. Where the Nets play. Should have been all along. And O'Malley had a plan for the Atlantic Yard Stadium to actually have a big, he had asked Buckminster Fuller to design a dome so that they could play other sports there in fall and winter after the baseball season ended. So there would have been a big geodesic dome over a baseball diamond in Brooklyn. Now, wait, is that space big enough for a Baseball stadium? I mean, maybe in 1940-whatever it was. It feels when did, when like, did the Dodgers move? Like 48? You can, you know, Barclays Center 52? sits there in its place, in its way, but a baseball diamond? It just feels like it would, it'd be, you'd have to, you'd have to reroute everything. I wonder if there was more vacant lots there. 58, not 48. I wonder if there was more vacant land there in, uh, in the mid-50s. Well, but just the roads. Sure, sure. Uh, we mentioned that, um, at some point in that show, we mentioned, you know, the modern corporate sponsorship of sports teams, like the Mighty Ducks being a nod to their Disney overlords. Right. James points out that there's actually a a longer history of that in sports. For example, uh, the Detroit Pistons were the Fort Wayne Zollner Pistons because that was the owner's business. He was making Pistons for Detroit car companies. Uh, and I remembered the Packers, I think were the same way. It was some meatpacking guy who named his team after the, it's just like little league teams today have a thing that say like Abby's, the Abby's pizza, Red Sox or whatever, you know, my, my Jiffy muffler, my elementary school soccer team was called King Tuck's hurricanes (laughs) and King Tuck's was a, was like a, a pretty sleazy bar in shoreline, um, that had like an Egyptian, themed pinball game or whatever. <laughs> but they wanted to support a little league team? Yeah, and they put their name on our jackets, and we were thrilled. I guess even in college sports, they're not above it. Like, the University of Akron team is the Zips, because Akron was home to, a, like, a groundbreaking zipper factory or something. Whoa. And uh, that was the main thing anybody could think of for a- Akron. So when they named the school team, they're like, well, I guess we're... What's Akron famous for? And I think there was Zippy the Zipper for a while. I don't know if he's still the mascot. I mean, Zips also works because presumably speed is good in most sports right. at which a college would have a team. Um, or at least, you know, having a certain kind of zip or a yeah, elan. Vim, vim, vigor. Yeah, you got vim and vigor. We mentioned the Toronto Raptors once in that show. Um, and I think we were talking about these teal and purple 
NBA yeah. expansion teams of the era that the Swamp Dragons were trying to chronicle. We heard from uh, a listener named Ryan who actually wrote the, I didn't realize he was a listener. He wrote the C, the CTV article about me trying to get Canadian fans all um, angried up about uh, my decrying the fake Blue Jays fans that, uh-huh. <laughs> that come down from BC in the summer. Uh-huh. So it turned out it was an omnibus listener. In fact, it was Ryan who wrote that article about my uh, disrespect of the... Uh, when did the article come out? Uh, whatever, three summers ago or four, whenever, whatever summer it was that but, I... But it feels pre-omnibus. No, I think we were all, it was... You were already yelling at the at the Toronto fans? 2019, oh. apparently. Yeah, so that would have been omnibus. We were knocking on the door of the pandemic. Uh, but Ryan, I guess, is a is a uh, omnibus and addenda listener, and he wants to know that even though this has not been written about much, uh, the owners of the Raptors wanted to call their team the Toronto T Rex. It was the, for the same reason. Jurassic Park was huge, and the league said no. Like we're trying to market to kids here. The T Rex scare them. The T Rex is scary. You Aww. might as well name your team the Draculas or Aww. the Frankenstein's. That would be so cool, the Toronto Draculas. Well, it's also insane. Like, who likes T-Rexes more than kids? Like Kids! The idea that you would not name a team the T-Rexes because kids wouldn't be into it uh, just seems like the worst management decision I can think of. Yeah. But it does explain why the raptors kind of have a cuddly, uh, a cute raptor running around instead of a scary Jurassic Park-style one. How dumb... I really do. I really do feel like the Toronto Frankenstein's is a better team, but the Toronto uh, <laughs> T Rex. I don't know. Are the thing is when they find T Rexes, they always find them out in South Dakota. They're never. There are no T Rexes in, in, in Toronto, Toronto, downtown Toronto. I feel like a team name should have something to do with the place, so it should be called the Toronto. What 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 has anything? What what does Toronto have anything to do with mm, uh, the Toronto? Comedy? The Toronto okay. in, The Toronto Improv Group. Yeah, the Toronto proximate to the United States. <laughs> yeah, that's every Canadian city. I think <laughs> Ryan, if you're listening, um, feel free to um, write more about my love and support for Canadian sports teams, just not their drunken fake invading British Columbian fans. So Ken, what's going on with uh, with our mascot and uh, and hometown homie Esowit the elephant? In what sense is he our hometown homie? Because we're from Nairobi? No, you know he's from our emotional hometown, I see. the hometown of Omnibus Inc. Yes. That, that emotion, <laughs> that emotion, Omnibus Inc. that we've all felt. It's a strong emotion, <laughs> Omnibus Inc. Well, I have some terrible news, John. I went to the um, I went to the internet today to find out what essay. What, what Wait, it, how much? How terrible is this news going to be? It's not traumatic. Okay, no trigger warnings necessary here. Okay, but I was excited to see what kind of uh, rascally uh, escapades essay was up to, only to see in my email. Uh, so I check them. I check this mailbox maybe once a month, which explains why when somebody wrote us a few weeks ago to say, "Hey, Ken and John, here's two tickets to the Sounders game tomorrow night." Uh, oh no! Neither of us ever saw it. Oh no! I think we were also both out of town. But um, but I, Mindy like saw it two weeks later and was like, "Hey, this guy tried to give you a Sonic or Sounders tickets twelve hours in advance." Well, that would have been fun. If you're listening, sir, thank you. Um, I got an email that said your adoption of Esso it has expired. Say what? I didn't even. Could you? Did you know an adoption could expire? 
Well, I mean, maybe uh, no. if, maybe if you're Miss Hannigan and Rooster from the movie of Annie, your adoption can expire. But, but they, I, they don't I come take your Essowit away. Apparently, they do. They send you a picture, a little watercolor of an elephant, and then an email being like, uh, "We just want to know that that nice person who adopted Essowit for you um, has expired. You can, if you wish, stay a part of Essowit's journey by taking on the adoption for yourself." And so, do, you know, I, I think I had already donated once, but you have to click some button saying, yes, yes, please, please no, readopt Essowit. Don't take Essowit. So I did, in fact, click on the button and donate to the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. So is Essowit back in our warm embrace? I was relieved to receive an email that said, thank you for renewing your adoption of Essowit. And there's a picture of him or a similar elephant. Really <laughs> hard to know. <laughs> um, and reassuring me that uh, our uh, our donation will help all these orphans with the nurturing love and dedication they need to grow, learn the ways of the wild, and when able, transition to an independent wildlife one day. So Essowit may be nice. at some point be healthy enough to return to uh, the wilds of Kenya. Return to the wild? Is that what that implies? Or just that they live independently somewhere on a preserve? Well, it says an independent wildlife. Yeah, I think you're probably right, that in Kenya it's going to be on protected land somewhere. It does feel like just turning Essowit loose on a herd of wild elephants is going to be maybe a difficult transition. Or just leaving him in some suburb and hoping he finds a herd of elephants. Right. I mean, that would be even Even worse. Even weirder. Like sending Essowit off to college. Drop drop him in the party. He's holding a little flag that says... (laughs) Kenya you and a <laughs> raccoon coat. <laughs> so the good news is, uh, so it, well, there were, let's see, I didn't see the email for about a month. So there were 15, presumably very scary days for so between where he early, was like, who's supporting me between early August and mid August when I think maybe he could sense that the, he was missing an emotion and that emotion was omnibus ink. <laughs> but you know, so is like a difficult elephant We've seen Essowit be somewhat of a of a problem to the other elephants. Maybe nobody wants to adopt Essowit, and all the <gasps> other elephants have lots of people adopting them. And we're Omnibus Inc. is all Essowit has. I feel like there's some Miss Hannigan type that's like you know dance pointing all the pointing all the adopters over to other little or cuter elephants. Yeah. Well, Essowit. Now, but Essowit's not the biggest troublemaker. It's that other one that's always kind of leading him astray. Oh, you're right. Essowit just seems like. A well-meaning follower, I suppose. So, do any of these elephants do any oil paintings? Is there at some point after you've adopted an elephant for a, for a year, do you get a painting by them? Uh, I feel like I've read that maybe now. elephants aren't into that. Oh, like is it bad zoo practice? Like it's facilitated communication. Yeah, the elephant's not painting; it's just the person holding the paper. <laughs> I so if you try to type "should elephants paint," it auto completes to "can elephants paint." No, I'm right. Here we go. Is elephant painting cruel? Um, blah, blah, blah. I guess here's the thing. PETA thinks it is because there are ways of treat of teaching elephants to paint that... But PETA thinks everything is cruel. That's true. Here's a nonprofit that says there are other ways to teach elephants to paint. Um, than by l- l- lashing it, them? <laughs> right. <laughs> when, the, when the perspective is off? No! <laughs> Look at that leg. You can't turn your leg that direction. Paint, damn you. Um, so I don't know. Well, here's, here's one green planet.org saying, here's why making an elephant paint is cruel, not cute. Well, making is the operative term, right? I think a lot of it is like these Thai tourist attractions where the elephants oh. really shouldn't be 
anyway. If you just have an elephant who's already in a zoo, that's the cruel part. And then you're like, here's some paint. The elephant's like, well, that's better than staring at the wall. I guess in many of these cases, they have a train. There's a trainer there with a pokey thing, and that's why they're painting a pokey thing. Yeah, I I would expect that uh, that good zoo practice would not allow trainers to use pokey things. No, it would only be like, does the elephant feel like painting today? And also, like, is he or she inspired? Like, yeah. is his or her muse present? Um, and those should be the criteria, not how likely he is to get a a Thai guy poking him in the butt. Right. So yeah, we're strongly on the side of the good kind of elephant painting here. Yes. And strongly against all the bad ones. Yes. And if they're all good or all bad, we are willing to adjust our opinion accordingly. Right. We're very malleable on this subject. We are just followers. We are not the bad elephants. That's the emotion of Omnibus Inc. Uh, We believe in the current social belief without exception. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 34. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.